But the point is to really understand your customer and to feel personally accountable for delighting them and actually bringing them back and bringing them back with their friends and their neighbors and their families. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. My guest this week is taking on one of the biggest challenges in transport. The William Shapps Rail White Paper, published earlier this year, was brutal in its assessment of the failings of the structure of the current rail industry. In 116 pages of well-written, eloquent prose, it pronounced franchising dead and announced the creation of a new organisation that will solve everything. Great British Railways is to be a new government body that will take on the fat controller role that's been missing for the last two decades. And the man tasked with creating this new fat controller is the existing Chief Executive of Network Rail, Andrew Haynes. Andrew, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. Thank you, Thomas, and thank you for such a low-key introduction. (laughs) <laughs> Everyone always says that. Um, I mean, but nevertheless, it is, to be fair, it is a huge task. I yeah. mean, when you were asked to do it, did you consider just saying, no? Nah. Uh, well, my I first reaction was, are you kidding? Um, but I think it's fair to say, look, I've had a lot of time to get to get my mind around the idea. Of course, you know, Keith Williams started his work in September 18. You know, with it, I'd been in at Network Club about four weeks when he started. And uh, and his much of his work was largely complete by the summer of 19. But it was then, you know, we then had a change of Secretary of State and Prime Minister, general election, then COVID. All of meant that um, the publication has been, you know, has been, you know, what, over 18 months after the work's complete. So I, I, I guess the honest answer is I've, I've had plenty of time to get my head around the concept. Doesn't make it any less challenging, but... Um, but, but I, I feel like I've moved on from the denial phase. <laughs> I mean, is this the? You've done quite a lot of different things in your career in, in different parts of yeah. the transport sector and outside it. Is yeah. this the most challenging task you've taken on? Do you think? Um, it, it, strategically, yes. I mean, because it's of course an opportunity to reshape uh, the way that the industry delivers for the people of Britain and our and our broader economic prosperity. So, in that sense, having the opportunity to do that. Uh, you know, isn't open to many people and isn't open, uh, you know, and doesn't come around to to most people more than once. So, of course, it's going to be, it's unique. Like, but, but like all of us, uh, you know, there comes a point where task difficulty is, you know, it's not sort of, a, it's neither linear, it's almost reverse exponential, isn't it? Really? It's just another increment, if that makes any sense at all. But I think, you know, you know what I mean? Actually, you know, you can, there's some really... I always say people doing the day-to-day job of, you know, we've had a horrible, nasty accident today where, you know, tractors hit a freight train. The people out there today have got a really, really, really tough job to do to get that railway running again. And mine isn't a million times harder than that. It's just harder in a different way. And so I genuinely passionately your, believe that. What are the things in your background that you'll be sort of looking back to and drawing on as you go through this this rather extraordinary task? Well, um, Lots of things, you know, I had the, you know, I, I started my railway career as a holiday job as a left luggage clerk. So, you know, that gave me a real sense right from day one, really, of what makes the railway function, really, and a lot about railway people. I then uh, 
in the early 1990s, I was part of the British Railways Privatisation Policy Unit. I was a very junior person. I think I might have been the most junior person there, below, you know, above the team organisers. But it meant that I was there understanding the logic of rail privatisation. I did my MBA while I was there. I did my I did my MBA thesis on incentivization regimes in a in a you know in vertically se separated uh, businesses. Um, so I think I have a pretty good understanding of both how the railway works and how it was intended to work as a result of the existing model. I've then uh, I then worked for network for RailTrack for several years before joining train operators and then ultimately ran in a portfolio of businesses that involved intercity operators, regional, commuter, uh, open access, freight, trams. Uh, and then I spent uh, eight and a half years at the CAA looking at regulation and about how you both do safety regulation and economic regulation and how you bring a very strong consumer focus to that. So, you know, somebody said to me, well, you've just been angling for this all your life. I said, far from it, but, but equally... Um, I've done jobs which I think do bring quite a lot of relevant reference points, but that but that one of being there in the early nineties of understanding the logic and rationale for the initial privatisation, I think is particularly pertinent. That's fascinating. Did, did you work with Jenny Williams? Um, in, yes, yeah, absolutely. Point? Yes, yeah. Now, Jenny's someone I, I've begged her to come onto the Freewheeling podcast, and, and she won't, which is a real shame because I remember having the most fascinating conversation with her, not on the record. So for for, yeah. for, for for people who don't know who Jenny was, Jenny led the privatization process of the railways within the civil service back in the 1990s. That's right. And talking to Jenny about exactly what you've just been talking to me about, what was it, the, the, the economic rationale, the incentive yeah. models, what was meant to happen, and talking to her now as to what they got right and what they got wrong, where people behaved in exactly the way the models told them they'd behave and where people behave totally differently is so interesting. And she's very open about the fact there were some things where they just were wrong. People didn't behave the way they were expected to behave. And talking to her, I felt it was a bit like, it was a bit like as someone who worked in the rail industry at the time, it was a bit like talking to God because she was the person who created the world I now lived in. And that's the, that's the role you're now taking on. So having gone through that experience... Well, I, I don't, don't overstate creating... my role. All I would say is I'm not... that. that, that it's really important that I, I don't get too big of my boots here. I've been asked to, to, to help support the government in the creation of GBR, but actually, you know, the, the architecture of the way the system will work is very much a Department for Transport responsibility. I've not been asked to design that architecture, you know. No, that's a fair uh, point. So actually. it's an, it's an important distinction. distinction. It is an important distinction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the architecture is the bit that, that could work or, could, or, or, or might not. It, um, yeah, indeed. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing that strikes me as interesting is you, at the time that... Um, Keith Williams was CEO of British Airways. You were at the Civil Aviation Authority um, as CEO. Um, now, I'm going to stretch this whole, this point far too far. And this is where I realise it breaks. But Grant Shapps is also a keen pilot. So we've got this whole architecture created by three, three people who all have spent time running, flying or regulating planes simultaneously. Um, are there lessons from aviation that you're going to have in mind, given that you do have that experience, given that Keith Williams had that experience? I think that look, there are some lessons from aviation but i think if you had keith on this you know, uh, on this series i would say he, he don't overstate that um the big lesson for me from aviation is actually that you know there are very very few contracts involved in heathrow there is no performance regime uh the knock-on effect of one operator on another is absorbed by heathrow now 
that can have its own perversities. But it does mean there's a much more agile system and a more flexible system and a much more commercial system. You know, the decision was taken to create a regime for the for the privatization of British Railways, which made contractualization was at the very, very heart of it uh, and didn't rely on property, law and property rights, which is what a lot of aviation relies on. Actually, everything would be codified. And um, I personally think that that turned out to be an error when the unexpected happened. And the big unexpected, of course, was growth. Nobody talked about privatization as being the big launchpad for growth. Frankly, the model was fundamentally designed to manage down subsidy. It created, it put all the subsidy originally in train operators. And so that meant that the, we could then compete for the for subsidy reduction. Remember, in the, back in 1994, beyond all the subsidy went in was in franchises. Rail track was designed in a way that it didn't require any subsidy. It was funded through charges. And that was precisely to say you then use private sector disciplines to drive down uh, the cost of the railway by competing in, in that way. Now, that's all fine, it, but it wasn't about how you grow the railway. And, of course, what we've seen since then has been a phenomenal growth prior to March 2020. And the system really, I think, be began to creep because of that. The dynamics changed immeasurably. And if you really want to accommodate growth, uh, then actually the levels of contractualization which had been delivered are uh, both were acted as an impediment, uh, but also created perverse incentives for how you did it. And that's that would be my biggest takeaway, that you can achieve success, you can achieve real private sector participation without having to have enormously bespoke, complex contracts which drive your every move. So thinking back to the 1990s when you were working um, with Jenny Williams, um, albeit as the most junior member of the team, yeah. uh, what was the reason why so much was contractualized then? Because um, I remember Jenny talking to me about how they created all of the players, but there was no need to contractualize every interface. So what was the, there must have been a risk they were seeking to mitigate when they made the decision to contractualize all those interfaces. Well, I, th I think it was partly that reason that I've already said that uh, all the subsidy was, was in the train operator. And that meant that then you were asking people to buy, to take on risk. So you so entirely understandably then, uh, if you're going to let a franchise, that franchise needs to know that its liabilities are capped and it's protected from damage by other players. And of course, uh, the whole performance regime, Schedule 8, uh, and the possession management regimes around Schedule 4, were fundamentally designed to protect the operator from revenue loss. They weren't fundamentally designed to increase performance. Nobody was hugely interested in Get, you know, put in put in another ten percent on PPM. Uh, it was largely to say, actually, if the infrastructure operator or another franchise operator damaged my revenue line, I would be protected from it. So, the the minute you you ask somebody to take on very significant risk, then you need they need protections. Yeah, um, that makes total sense. I think that's and I think that's where so much of this came from. And I think you. We then, frankly, just got rather carried away with it. And, you know, there are, I, there are very few people now who still really understand the demarcation between network rail and train operators when it comes to stations, for example. For example, yeah. if, you go, if you were to walk, if you were to go around 20 stations, you'll probably find the line where it starts being nicely painted and badly painted is different in 20 of them. 
because different people have a different interpretation of their responsibility. Twenty. I'm going to check that. <laughs> it's bonkers. You know. Now, what one of the things that some people thought when the rail white paper first came out was the the ambition within the rail white paper to abolish performance regimes um, was going to be made more difficult by the fact that there were still going to be private contractors delivering the service and the private contractors would need to be um, measured, the performance would need to be measured because it was they were going to be incentivized according to performance. And as they weren't going to own their own infrastructure, you would still need something that ended up looking like Schedule 4 and Schedule 8. Uh, have you given any thought to how to take away the pheasant problem? You know, in the, the rail white paper talks about you know, whether a pheasant's a big bird or a small bird, but still be able to properly me measure the performance of operators as a distinct from the network as a whole. Well, yes, and look, it's still a work in progress. Uh, in, uh, in progress, but I absolutely believe two things. First of all, that you want a that the new uh, public sector uh, pu public service contracts are absolutely need to reward people for delivering what consumers want because that's how you drive growth in the railway that's how you drive you know net reduction in cost to, to the taxpayer ultimately so that i think they need strong levels of incentivization the problem i have is and i have seen it from so many different angles is the current regimes don't create the most collaborative behaviors when i first went to run southwest trains and we had a bit of a financial challenge. I just trebled the number of delay attributors. We put into dispute delay attribution because it was it was a no-brainer business case. So when people say to me, "Oh, we don't do those things," I say, "Well, you're far more honourable than I was when I was running the <laughs> and I don't believe you are, by the way, because yeah. it's a rational it's a rational response to those sort of incentives. Um, you know, uh, there is currently all reactionary delay. Uh, you know, is t you know. Uh, people are not adequately incentivized to respond to reactionary delay. Uh, yeah. you, know, you, you look at external events and this, the whole issue of, um, for example, trespass or suicide, those sort of things where how we manage it is so important. The regime was designed to protect the operator because of their revenue risk. If you take away the revenue risk, that doesn't mean you have to take away the incentive to run a reliable railway. So it's yeah. Schedule 8 suffers from being a compensation regime which is also used to incentivize good performance. If you actually say the compensation is no longer relevant because you're not exposed to material revenue risk, then actually you can have a regime that's focused primarily on what drives best performance. So I actually think it's easier to do in the future than it's been now because you don't have that conflict of interest that you try to conflate in one regime. Yeah, Does that make absolutely. sense? That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I think what you're saying is we'll still measure it, um, people will need to attribute, but they can attribute honestly because they haven't got their boss breathing down their neck saying, for God's sake, get all the delay onto the other guy so that we get money yeah. back. And you don't, need right? to, you don't need to measure every single minute. Yeah. You know, because once we an just... event has happened, you know, what matters is how quickly you recover from it, not where every single minute is allocated because every sing single minute will have a pound attributed to it. Yeah, that's, the, that's the big distinction, you know. That makes sense. Yeah. So talk to me a bit about, I, I'm feeling kind of slightly daunted at the task facing you. How actually do you go about the process of creating Great British Railways? And I don't mean to what, what the end goal looks like, but literally just what do you do now? Because it's you can't sort of stop the railway to move everything around and then start up again. 
And this is a kind of mid-air re refueling exercise that the whole industry's got to go through while keeping everything running at the same time. You really are fixated well, on this aviation analogy, aren't you, Thomas? But yes. Oh, well, I, can't, <laughs> I can't help it, can I? <laughs> no, no I'll, I'll, see, well, I'll see if I can feed the beast. I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, it's like it's um, I, th I think the first thing to say is actually, we've you know, we're still on the runway. You know, very good. Uh, you know, we're, we're, uh, you know, we, we've not we've not taken, and that's important because, uh, as I said right at the outset, the Department for Transport is accountable for creating the overall architecture here, and what nobody wants is for Great British Railways to go off, and design itself, uh, out both out of context with what else happens in the rest of the system architecture, but moreover without really broad set consultation. And engagement with the rest of the with the rest of the sector. All my experience is that, that that you work best is when when you can really engage with people. When I took on my job at Network Rail, first thing I asked my inherited leadership team to do was to read a book called Collaboration by Morton Hansen because I passionately believe that you get more out of circumstances if you can really get effective collaboration. So look, we're absolutely uh, you know. Uh, uh, we're, we're still on the runway. We're just about to reach the point of takeoff, but the you know the uh, the steepness of the ascent uh, will change quite quickly. Uh, but but at the moment we're still very much in those formative stages. And indeed, the Secretary of State is very clear. He wants me to do certain things in certain sequences, and it's right that they have that that that, uh, that control. So over the next four to five months, it's very much in the building of the of the methodology phase, really until and then. Next year, really trying to hit the ground running by demonstrating how we can input into the uh, the new contracts, working more closely with RDG, looking at what are the really sh important short term consumer benefits. I mean, you know, you've written and sort of you know spoken very uh, eloquently and I think very uh, impactfully about you know the extent to which the current railway ignores both technology potential but also the the essence of what good service looks like these days. And that's what's going to be at the heart of, of Great British Railways. And what I want us to do is make sure that we build a culture that really takes that seriously before we start telling everybody else in the industry what they've got to do. And it's, it's one of the cultures, one of the things that I'm, I'm most sort of worried about isn't quite the right word, but you know, the, the, what I see from my time in, in the rail sector is that Network Rail has a very, very strong culture. And it's the culture that has delivered the safest railway in Europe. And that is an astonishing achievement. But it also feels a very different culture to the culture that's going to be needed if you're going to create a commercially responsive, customer-focused organization that's nimble and agile. And yet, Great British Railways has to be created out of somewhere. Um, and it'll it, it, by default, it must be created out of network rail because there's nowhere else really to create it from. And how does GBR come out of that inception process with its own distinctive culture, um, given that it's being created effectively out of out of network rail? Because you don't want to lose network rail's culture either, because it's delivered the most important metric the industry has to deliver successfully. Yeah. Well, look, um, it really is the $64 million question. But I don't think it's as difficult as some people suggest part, for two reasons. First of all, there will remain a key role for an infrastructure delivery capability within the uh, within the industry. And um, much of what Network Rail currently does will, will remain in that context, albeit reporting to Great British Railways. And as you said, we don't we there are some real important 
values and attributes that come out of that culture, which we would not want to uh, imperil. But it's also a culture. There is a function of the incentives that Network Rail has had. Network Rail has never been exposed to uh, revenue risk. Its revenue is almost is guaranteed. Well, it is every five years when it negotiates with the regulator. You know, and that's why you know one of my predecessors, I remember saying to me many years back that he, he regarded himself as only having one customer, and that was the regulator. Now, I think that set a profound set of uh, you know. A, a, a misdirection for network rail, but it was, if you like, an inevitable consequence of saying, well, you know, my revenue risk happens once every five years and I negotiate with the revenue, with, with the regulator. So if you have a whole industry PL, I think that of itself drives a different set of incentives and gives you a platform for a different set of behaviors where people really are at risk. And, you know, I've had to educate um, my executive team into how the industry works genuinely. And look, they've been lapping it up. There's been no resistance, but people who first-class, world-class people in network rail who didn't understand railway economics because that wasn't a necessary precursor to being part of network rail. So by opening up that box and actually saying, this is how the system works, I think you start to drive that. Secondly, of course, is uh, the future has to be uh, much, much broader than network rail. Uh, I've been asked to create this transition arrangement. There is no uh, implication in that or inference that I would be the first chief executive. Chief executive of that new body might come from entirely without the sector. But in the intervening period, we've got to make sure that we get as many different views and perspectives and skill sets as we can. So at the moment, Suzanne Donnelly, the, you know, the commercial director of LNER, has been doing some brilliant work with us on uh, on uh, revenue recovery. Uh, we've got other people from train operators helping us in that regard. We've got senior people from uh, from TFL working with us. We'd, we're about to, you know, get a senior consignment from the regulator. We use an advisor from aviation. I want to build a genuinely very, very broad church. You know, yeah. this, this is, you know, this needs to look much more like, you know, the 21st century Church of England than it does some sort of exclusive set made up only of, <laughs> of you know, of network rail, uh, you know, zealots. Absolutely. No. And I think that point about network rail effectively having one customer is a really interesting one because you know, I would love to see a GBR that comes out of this that, that culturally is just obsessed with chasing down every last customer. Yeah. And, absolutely. you know, at Chiltern Railways, we, we I think genuinely one of the, you know, we, we certainly weren't perfect. I mean, we got lots of things wrong. And it was very easy for us because of our scale and our, our franchise structure. But we did, we really did obsess around individual customers. Yes. And, Actually, can you scale that up? Well, if you look at the other end of the spectrum at Amazon, which is one of the biggest companies in the world, it can be done. And some people say they take it too far. And, you know, there's lots of negative consequences that. But my word, they're obsessed with customers. Um, but it's it will be an, it'll be a challenge. It, it, it is. But that's a, another reason why, um, you know, I'm so passionate about devolution. And, you know, when I went when I when I went for the interviews for my current job as chief executive of Network Rail, I said, I passionately believe in devolution. I believe that Network Rail is too big to change culturally from one location uh, and we need much more closer pro much much closer proximity to our customers to our stakeholders um, and i was delighted that keith williams absolutely emphatically agreed with that in his review that said for great british railways to work it needs to be a massively devolved uh entity with five really strong uh re regional regional bodies and some people say to me oh you know, where's British Railways headquarters going to be based? And I say in a phone box somewhere. Because, <laughs> you know, we, we mustn't think of it as this organization that's going to have 
10 or 15,000 jobs somewhere trying to trying to do everything, that would be utterly disastrous. It would have been disastrous 20 years ago, but even in today's economy, even more so. Really, really strong devolution. And it mustn't stop at those regional levels. I do, I, you know, at the risk of uh, you know blowing hot smoke in your direction, uh, Thomas, I absolutely agree with the, that the, that the Chilton is a good example of where that uh, that you know, smallish can be can be beautiful because it gives you a really strong identification. I think some people have done it really well on bigger scales as well. But the point is to really understand your customer and to feel personally accountable for delighting them and actually bringing them back and bringing them back with their friends and their neighbours and their families next time around. Yeah. That's exactly it. And, you know, it's not smoke in my direction. I haven't been there for five years. So it's a whole lot of other people now. But Yeah, but it's gone downhill so much since then, hasn't it? That's it. That's the trouble. Exactly. You've nailed it. Um, that's, but what was true is, yeah, because of our, our that was a our joke. Sorry, to the, I should say Richard Allen and anybody, anybody in Arriva, please. It was unambiguously yeah. a joke, and I think I think we all know it as indeed regular commuters on Chiltern Railways frequently tell me. Um, yes, <laughs> it has sadly never been better, and I'm always pissed off when they tell me that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, the the reason why we chase down every customer is that our our, our franchise structure meant that we would lose money if yes. we didn't. It was very yes. very simple. We were massively incentivized yes. to care about customers. Um, and one of my slight sort of niggles about the new structure is the, the break between the operators and GBR. Because in a, I, I get a sort of private system like Chiltern Railways where you are incentivized because it's your money, it's your bottom line, and you're, it's a very simple incentive. And I also totally get a pure public service motivation, such as London Underground, where you're there to deliver a public service and you understand it. And GBR is a kind of public service organization, and that makes sense. And the private operators delivering it our motive, our, our, our private organisations, but when a what worries me is when a customer has a chat with someone on the gate line and gives them that sort of nugget of feedback. How does that get up the, to the person at GBR? Because there's a kind of contractual break now that didn't used to exist. Because in in Chiltern Railways or indeed any private train operator, it it all stays within the operator, and in a public service system, it all stays within that public service. But there's a kind of break and that have you given any thought to that 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 niggle because that's something that that does worry me slightly well it well i mean the first thing to say there of course is that if you make that 13 layers between the guy uh you know on you know uh on on, on the ticket barrier and somebody who can do something about it then that is catastrophic isn't it and that's one of the reasons why i say we've really really got to be serious about uh, about uh, devolution, but I think you're, you know, some of your ex-colleagues, you know, one Mr. Brighouse, you know, who's known, to, who's, who's known to many of us, would say actually that the London, uh, that the TFL model, that you know, that that was there with with Laurel, actually had some of those dynamics. That actually that you could, uh, it may not be perfect, but there was sufficient hunger for improvement, and a sufficiently short chain of command that you could change things and that is the, that is the key like i think one of the things that will be really cathartic albeit hugely challenging for great british rugs is it's going to have a really challenging financial settlement from treasury because of where we find ourselves as an economy and moreover you know uh, uh, the railway but that does make you very hungry um and actually owning that pnl i think is going to be a very very strong incentive especially if we create the right climate internally. If you create the wrong climate, then what, what it'll result in is mindless cost-cutting 
which actually means that your bottom line isn't really any better at the end of the day. So you're, it's got to be that combination of right culture and strong incentive and ensuring then the operators are genuinely rewarded for delivering what they're asked to deliver. Someone who cares about this stuff, um, someone who cares about optimizing the timetable to mm. maximize revenue growth or someone who really wants to get into the fares structure and improve it to benefit customers and therefore grow the bottom line. Are they going to be in an operator on Great British Railways in future? Where, where do they live? I think if you're interested, uh, in most cases, they will be somewhere in Great British Railways because the timetable optimization will be largely a matter for Great British Railways uh, because it will, it will have the revenue risk and, along with along along with the whole system PL uh, and it will have the levers um, now what we want to do is ensure that the way that contracts are procured and awarded allows for operators to genuinely bring what they can to the party of course we know that latterly franchise in a struggle to do that for all not because actually people in the department didn't want to, but because the model with the level of risk that came with it meant that it became very, very legalistic and opened a legal challenge. So I think we shouldn't be dewy-eyed about where we currently are. You know, with, you know Chilton, of course, you know, ha hasn't been competed for a very long time. People would say they've really struggled to add a lot of that value once they're in situ in some of the other more recent franchises or indeed to be able to deliver it. You know, so it, it's one thing to have all the great ideas, but you've got to be in a position where you can deliver them and be accountable for them as well. And yeah, I would absolutely. argue that, you know, that, that, that removing the full revenue risk actually enables us to do some of that more creatively uh, than actually exposing people. Because, they, you know, these are huge sums of money that people were on the hook for. And we know that it, they drove sometimes over ambitious propositions. They drove propositions weren't necessarily in the, best consumer interest uh, and they've turned out to be not realizable the minute there's any type of external shock uh, that doesn't mean i'm not believer in appropriate revenue risk but a system where so much of the risk went on to their operator didn't deliver those sort of glorious outcomes you know um that we might be daydreaming of in practice Absolutely. And I, I'm always slightly nervous about mentioning Children Railways as an example, because it is unique in an awful lot of respects. Yes. And yeah, I'm, I'm well aware that it's unique in many respects. It's not you can't just lift and shift that model. It came out of a very specific set of both geographical, chronological and human yes. circumstances, Absolutely. shall we yes. say. Yeah. Um, but it's I suppose the thing that I do take from it is 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 just that need for 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 customer obsession because if we Absolutely. if we can keep that culture and expand and take that culture everywhere then an awful lot of the rest of it falls out from that and, that, and a, that needs to be a magic, if i had a magic wand and i could wish one thing it would be that that obsession about customer because i think that's what would be genuinely transformative yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. so one question that you, you may not be able to answer at this stage, but and this is definitely not me pitching for a job because, you know, I've just got a new one. Yeah. Um, but a number of people asked me, do, do how do they get a job in Great British Railways? I've had people say to me they're keen to work for GBR. It sounds exciting. What do they what do? They do? What is, what, what's the kind of timeline looking forward for how people can can get involved? Well, look, um, that's something we're currently discussing with the, with the Secretary of State. Uh, 
what we're proposing effectively is a sort of three phases to this. The first is a very, very informal phase between now and sometime spring next year, where uh, where we work in a plan so we, we build secondments. Um, the second phase then would be for great, the Great British Railways transition team to be a standalone corporate entity uh, within the network rail family for the reasons you articulated, just for convenience, not because of any special treatment of network rail, uh, where, where it could recruit its own uh, employees. And then the, the third phase then would be after second reading of the legislation that's, that would be, would be involved. And at that stage, then, you can start making formal appointments to the end state. I think the parliamentary convention is that once you've got to second reading, you can start hiring a chief executive and all the other jobs right through the organization. So at the moment, we're working largely on secondments from spring next year. Hopefully, if we get approval, appointment to a transition team, you know, for a period of a few years uh, and then uh, following second reading, begin the, uh, you know, to rec to, rec uh, to advertise and recruit for those long-term roles. So that's the sort of window we're talking about. It all takes a lot longer than you might think because with legislation, you've got to get a parliamentary slot. You've got to get drafting done. And of course, whilst for those of us in the industry, this might be the biggest thing on the government's agenda. Needless to say, uh, you know, it isn't. And nor, should, and nor should it be. And it's got to win its slot uh, in what could be a very congested parliamentary timetable. And what do we do? What's I'm, going to I'm sorry. About and, and, for that re and for that reason, I think we've got to look at what we can do as a system collaboratively in advance of formally setting up GBRTT. So the answer to some of your your uh, interested you know, applicants might be the best off staying where they are and working with GBRTT from, from, from outside, for example. And what's going to happen in terms of revenue rebuild post-pandemic how we kind of we had a structure and it, it wasn't working for all kinds of reasons and it was proposed to change it and as you say the the new plan was written before the pandemic occurred now the pandemic's happened there hasn't been a single day since covid hit where revenue has or, or patronage has hit 60 percent of where it used to be so there's this massive job to rebuild demand on the railway and the railway is distracted reorganizing itself for excellent reasons but how how to how to do both together any any thoughts on that challenge well i slightly facetiously i'd say you need to you, you're going to need to sort of uh, date stamp this interview because i think we're probably just about to hit that 60 percent hooray <laughs> literally any moment any moment now driven largely by off peak in the last in the last six weeks or so we are now seeing a strong bounce back in in leisure travel. On many routes now, it's up to 90% of pre-COVID. But of course, business travel and commuting is a fraction of what it was historically. So we're probably, I haven't seen this week's results yet, but we're probably circa 60% as we speak. Um, well, look, um, how, how, do we, how, do we, how do we do that? Well, first of all, um, we've got to make sure the product is attractive. Secondly, we've got to understand, and by that, by that I mean, you know, we know that service reliability is, remains paramount for the vast majority of people. We've got to make sure that the pro, that it's affordable to people, and uh, you know the government's had an initial go at that with the, with the flexi season season tickets. And I know they're very very actively thinking about uh, what further measures are needed. The thing that we are sort of grappling with as part of the Rail Revenue Recovery Group, which is the group I've been asked asked to set up, you know, to look at this across the industry is 
what has fundamentally changed about the dynamics of particularly commuting and business travel, you know? Uh, and this will sound desperately weak, but we still think it's too early to say. Because, of yeah, course, no, it's, it's only, what is it? In Scotland, it's still strong advice not to work in the office. Mm. Frankly, in England and Wales, the advice is still quite mixed. And, of course, we're still in the, in the summer period. So it, look, it's uppermost in people's minds. Um, what I'm very, very determined to, to, to recommend, though, is that we learn the lessons of the past, where actually we were on eight, nine, ten years of sustained deterioration in train service delivery and increasing customer dissatisfaction because actually we were not offering a sound product in the first instance. Now, it can be done. Interestingly, at the moment, there is one railway at the moment that is absolutely back in the trends, and that's Anglia. Sorry, not Chilton for once, but actually Greater <laughs> Anglia at the moment is continuing to improve its train service performance despite the increase in traffic. And it's doing that whilst it's inter introducing new trains. So actually, you yeah. can, we can do it. We can run a phenomenally reliable railway. The numbers they are churning out every day are really pretty impressive. Higher uh, they've got both... Uh, I think better revenue growth than most others, and certainly a higher level of train service and patronage, and yet they're doing they're doing well. So there's definitely something we can be learning, um, but we're in a very fluid stage, and I think the, the key is just to make sure that we are really understanding what passengers are telling us about you know about their preferences over the next couple of months or so. Final question from me: um, When you hand over um, Great British Railways. Um, what what will good look like for you? If you when you stand back and sort of admire your handiwork, um, what will cause you to kind of give a, a satisfied nod and to say, "Yeah, that's that's what I wanted it to be." Um, I I talk about simple, sustainable, and separate. Um, by simple, I mean actually that we created the um, ability for the railway to be genuinely responsive to consumers. And by consumers, I mean freight users as well in that in, in that term, um, because we we can respond because we are, we have created a structure which allows us to be adaptable. Because it seems to me we are going to be in quite a fluid period. Secondly, then sustainability is about tackling some of the unacceptable costs of the railway. Now we've managed to well more than double the number of passengers and yet increase the cost per passenger. That's quite an achievement. As a system, isn't it? I mean, there are not many businesses in the world that manage to, you know, d double revenue and still end up with a poorer PL. Um, and then the third one, slightly contentiously, I genuinely believe that the railway does need to have a degree of separation from its political masters so that it, again, so it can be responsive and it can be held account uh, for that. And if we've got something that has done that and, on, and is then, as I said, fixated about acting in the consumer's interests then I will be immensely proud. And uh, we, I think we'll have set ourselves up for, you know, a very, very strong generation uh, of railway service. And does your political master agree with that last S? I think you'll find that's what the white paper says. Fantastic. Brilliant. Well, look, thank you so much. That was a really interesting conversation. Thank you very much for joining me on the Free Reading Podcast. Thank you, Thomas. Take care. Thank you very much indeed to my guest, Andrew Haynes, the Chief Executive of Network Rail. And thank you to you for listening. That concludes the Freewheeling Podcast this week, but I will be back again next week with another guest, and I hope you'll join me then. Goodbye. Goodbye.